So here we are, episode 7, which was not supposed to be about aliens, but after spending the past week doing research for the UFO Watchtower in Hooper, Colorado for episode 6, I simply couldn't stop. Flying saucers, Cold War chicanery, and a government cover-up. We must be talking about the 1947 Roswell UFO incident. It's the most famous UFO sighting in American history and helped to shape the public's perception of alien contact and government mistrust around extraterrestrial communication. It's so popular that the town of Roswell has been able to shape their identity around it and has become a hub for enthusiasts, so much so that it's the home of the International UFO Museum and Research Center, where you can learn the full story of what really happened in July of 1947 and why the government felt it needed to shield the American public from what they knew about a UFO's crash landing. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to Interstate Odyssey. I'm your host, Sophie Peterson. If you like learning about obscure fantastical, and even some potentially haunted places throughout America, you've come to the right place. Each week, I'll be covering different roadside attractions throughout the United States. The good, the bad, and the absolutely strange. Well, on the evening of July 2nd, 1947, several witnesses... On the headline, a look at the most famous UFO story... The most famous Thousands of people are converging on the town of Roswell for an entirely different reason. 67 years ago this week, true believers say a UFO Okay, so remember, UFO doesn't always mean alien spaceship. It literally just stands for unidentified flying object. Technically, I saw a UFO my sophomore year of college at Colorado State University. It was super early in the morning, like 5 a.m., and I was driving across town to my nannying job. As I was driving down the road, my eye caught on what seemed to be a massive fireball. It broke off into other smaller fireballs, and I remember screaming and pretty much not knowing what to do since I couldn't get my phone out and record what I thought was the potential destruction of human civilization— because I was in the middle of the road, driving. It was disorienting, exciting, and unlike anything I'd ever seen before. I mean, obviously, I'm still talking about it seven years later. I didn't hear any reports about the incident until much later. It turns out what I saw was a Russian spy satellite that had blown up and was falling to Earth. I think somewhere around Wyoming. Though it wasn't aliens, it's cool to think that I watched a spy satellite fall out of the sky, even if I didn't know it at the time. Especially because I eventually had a clear answer to what exactly it was that I saw. Conversely, I can't imagine the feeling of seeing something so extraordinary and then never getting an explanation of what the heck it was, which is why I think that the Roswell incident has become such a popular story. So... Let's dive in to what exactly happened at Roswell in 1947 and why it was so interesting that it has a whole museum dedicated to it. Roswell, 
a small farming and ranching town in central New Mexico, became the epicenter of interest in paranormal activity and UFO sightings after the famed incident. But before 1947, it was still a noteworthy place. Roswell was home to a military base that housed something called the 509th Composite Group upon the end of the Second World War. This is a unit of the United States Army Air Forces that was responsible for overseeing the operational deployment of nuclear weapons. So, the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, that was these guys. Obviously, the years following World War II marked a general distrust of Americans to their fellow citizens, what with the obsession with McCarthyism and smoking out communism by whatever means necessary. All amongst the backdrop of the Cold War and the knowledge that weapons of mass destruction like the atomic bomb were a thing and they could be used on us apparently at any given moment. Actually, a popular theory amongst enthusiasts, especially at the time, was that extraterrestrial life became interested in us, particularly Americans, because they felt the atomic bomb in one way or another. The vibrations or something, I don't know. Either way, it's been posited that if we weren't on the cosmic radar before, then we surely were after such a massively devastating event. I think the more realistic idea, not to get too philosophical, is that we as humans were forced to confront how much control we had, and that was scary. But it also drove many people to look at the bigger picture and think about what else was possible. This way of thinking gave us some of the best science fiction of all time, which I think is really what should get credit for igniting the public interest in outer space. This feeling was captured really perfectly in the 60s with JFK and the moon landing. Space became an icon of youth, hope, and fearless exploration. However, space exploration and contact with life on other planets didn't always signify hope and excitement. In the case of the Roswell UFO incident, it signaled that darker distrust I mentioned, not only with your fellow man, but the government. This would be felt on an even more amplified scale towards the end of the 70s and into the 80s when cases like the Roswell UFO incident came back into the fore of public scrutiny as almost a metaphor for the distrust that they had for the administrations of that time period. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Roswell, New Mexico. It's out here in the middle of the state, home to the 509th Composite Group and a handful of farmers and ranchers. About 90 miles away from Roswell, near another town called Corona, on July 2nd, 1947, a man named W.W. Brazel made a startling discovery. Mac, as his friends had called him, had found peculiar-looking debris on his land that he couldn't quite make sense of. By his own accounts chronicled in the local Roswell Daily Record, Mac had found material that looked like tinfoil along with sticks, rubber strips, and a very tough paper-like material. He knew that it wasn't anything like a weather balloon. He'd seen a bunch of those, given they were off to land on his property. He decided to go into town and ask the local sheriff if he had any ideas of what it could be on July 8, 1947. Because the stuff looked, in his words, kind of confidential-like. The news traveled up the chain of command and made it to the Roswell base, specifically because the sheriff called the base to inquire if this debris could have any relation 
to the UFOs spotted by a Washington man named Kenneth Arnold just a couple months prior. I have a post about him on the Interstate Odyssey Instagram feed and how he spotted the crafts that would end up coining the term flying saucer, even though they were crescent-shaped. So if you want to read more about that, go check out the Instagram. Anyways, the Army Air Force Roswell Base contacted officials at Fort Worth in Texas and subsequently sent a plainclothes agent named Jesse Marcel to Roswell to meet up with Mac Brazell. Mac took Marcel to the ranch where they would attempt to figure out what it was that he had found. They even tried to reassemble pieces of the debris. After investigating this debris, the base, specifically Roger Ramey, one of the higher-ups at the Dallas Air Force Base, released a statement to the local newspaper that sent the nation into a collective lather. The Intelligence Office of the 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield announced at noon today that the field has come into possession of a flying saucer. As if this wasn't going to drive people who were already interested in this stuff completely nuts. Like, there were newspaper headlines that straight up said, Roswell Army Airfield captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. And, I mean, there was no internet to fact-check this, so it would have been pretty wild to pick up a newspaper and see a headline that basically said, We found a flying saucer, it's real, and we have it. Like, what? And to make things even weirder, five hours later, the government walked back that statement, basically saying, just kidding, that wasn't a UFO. Cue even more chaos. In the time between the base announcing that they had found a captured flying saucer and them walking back that statement, they had taken Mac in for questioning and sent government officials out to investigate the site. Eventually, Mac Brazel came back from Roswell with a new truck, which gave many locals near Corona an idea that he might have been bribed by the government. He alluded to the fact that he was heavily interrogated and was allegedly subjected to a physical search while under a sort of house arrest in Roswell, with continued surveillance after the interrogation had concluded. Locals were even more surprised to find that Brazel, who had been assumed to be a poor rancher, purchased a meat locker and a new house soon after the infamous encounter. Locals couldn't put their finger on it, but the whole situation seemed off. Roswell bounced into the international news scene yesterday when a flying disc was reported 85 miles northwest of town and 25 miles from Corona by W.W. Mac Brazel. And until the 8th Air Force headquarters in Fort Worth announced the disc was nothing more than a weather balloon, the entire U.S. and England seethed with curiosity over the report, and the Roswell Telephone Company was busy handling calls from every city in the country, and several across the sea. Roswell Morning Dispatch, 1947. So, like I said, it only took the Army a few hours to debunk their own statement that they had captured a UFO, but by the next day, on the 9th of July, the Roswell Morning Dispatch had gotten into contact with General Roger Ramey once again, who tells them it was just a weather balloon and essentially that everyone needs to chill. There's actually some pictures of Roger Ramey with the debris that was collected, and yeah, it looks like a big, crumpled-up, silver balloon-type object. 
That being said, this picture is from the 1940s and black and white, so if you told me it was a space blanket or material that had, I don't know, fallen off a billboard, I'd probably believe that too. It just looks like a crumpled up foil sheet. According to conspiracy theorists, Ramey initially had a very different box of evidence that was removed from his desk and replaced with this balloon in the picture. In that same picture, if you look closely, Ramey looks to also be holding a memo of some sort, and that's pretty much indecipherable since, again, it's an old photograph. Allegedly, the memo holds secrets of what was really going on that day and what Ramey was told about the incident. People have claimed to have deciphered parts of the memo from the photograph, and there's even a $10,000 reward that was up for grabs if someone could decipher the whole thing. The U.S. government said that nobody could do it and people should stop trying because it's irrelevant, which of course made everyone ten times more interested to see what it might say. According to Dr. Roger Lanius, an expert from the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, during a talk he gave in 2011, the object by all accounts looked like a balloon type object, but looked really nothing like an actual weather balloon. According to him, and subsequently the US government and Air Force, it turns out that this thing was actually part of a top secret Cold War era effort called Project Mogul. The government was attempting to float a balloon-like object up into the atmosphere all the way over into the Soviet Union to see if they were building nuclear weapons by detecting sound waves emitted from the atomic bomb tests. After World War II, we jumped headfirst into the Cold War, which I'm sure did not help quell the newfound interest in UFOs. And like, why would it? Like I mentioned before in 2015, when I saw that fireball over Fort Collins, it was literally a Russian spy satellite. At this point, the Russians did not in fact have any atomic weapons, however in 1949, just a few years later, the United States learned fairly quickly that they had developed a bomb thanks to the technology that was being used in Project Mogul. Dr. Lanius also puts forth the idea that the UFO landing narrative might have actually inadvertently served a purpose for the military, in order to draw attention away from Project Mogul. He says that the weather balloon narrative was definitely a purposeful diversion as to not share with the public this new Cold War technology. So, by the end of 1947, the interest in the Roswell UFO died down, and the American public eventually learned what the balloon was and Everyone just kind of went back to business as usual. Just kidding. Well, I mean, that actually did happen, and interest in this particular incident did die down for quite a while. That is, until the early 1970s, when people who claimed to be involved in the events of 1947 came forward with some new information that would solidify this event as the world's most famous, most exhaustively investigated, and most thoroughly debunked UFO claim. The video I watched of Dr. Lanius giving a speech about the details and events of the UFO claim in 1947 takes a turn towards the end. He goes from enthusiastically laying out the timeline of the events, from finding the debris to the history of the 509th, to a more desultory description of the ensuing interest in the 1970s. And he even goes as far as to say that he's in the group which believes the government was in fact telling the truth about Project Mogul, which like, I'm sure this guy has done a ton of research on this since he's a literal expert giving speeches at the Smithsonian. 
But I think what gets people's minds churning is that this is a dude from the government who said that the government covered up this event, but then told the truth about it, so there's nothing to explore further about the case, especially the people from the 1970s who started making claims way after the fact. In a time where mistrust of the U.S. government is at an all-time high, I kind of get why there would be so many skeptics who wouldn't take this at face value. That being said, it's rough to have an expert lay out all of the details of an event and have people turn around and go, yeah, but I saw this YouTube video about UFOs, so I think you're wrong. Also, at the end of this particular speech, he held up what looked like a massive coffee table book and said if people wanted to do further reading on the subject, then they can seek out the Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert, which is an authorized compendium of documents on the matter released by the Air Force in 1994. I hate to report that I did not in fact read this book since it's fucking massive, but I did read some of the Roswell Report from the U.S. Air Force that is now online. So what exactly did these actors from the Roswell incident have to say all these years later? And full disclosure, this is where the research for this episode became way less straightforward. Like, the actual event itself is pretty cut and dry as to what officially happened. There was a thing that landed in New Mexico in July of 1947. The government was contacted, and they said it was a weather balloon, but it was instead a top-secret spy balloon to use on Russia, so they couldn't tell us what it was right away. Okay, easy enough. The 1970s bit is where all sorts of new information starts to pop up. There's a lot of deathbed confessions, secondhand testimonies, and there's so many different angles that the History Channel has covered for different docuseries about this stuff. So at this point, there's just a ton of different alleged witnesses or people who claim to know the truth. But TLDR, all of these unrelated witnesses said the same thing. They saw aliens. Most people think there's something happened here. I'm not really sure what happened, but obviously something happened. Something crashed. Evidence shows that probably it was an extraterrestrial. You've got an army pilot, a civil engineer, an archaeologist, a U.S. Army sergeant who peeked under a tarp at the scene, a random woman dying of cancer who made a deathbed confession. That sounds like the beginning of a terrible joke, but out of all of these people that gave interviews in the documentaries, as well as the actual Roswell report, and there were a lot, there seemed to be a cohesive narrative that was coming out of everyone's stories that didn't match up with the report that I explained initially. These witnesses claimed that there was a second area, not on Mac Brazell's ranch, but a bit further away that could only be explained as some sort of crash landing site that was happened upon by just a handful of civilians. The witnesses claimed that before government officials arrived, they saw small gray figures in silver jumpsuits laying on the ground with a large saucer-shaped aircraft sticking out of the ground beside them, tipped on its side. Most of them had similar accounts of the small gray figures. They had large heads, slim bodies, were grayish, had large eyes on the sides of their faces, and seemed to only be a few feet tall. They also all agreed that when the government officials showed up, 
They made everyone back the fuck up, not to talk about it, as it was a matter of national security and brought in a wrecker, a bunch of trucks, military personnel, and a weapons carrier. The Roswell Report indicates that all of the witnesses also saw this craft and creatures at a distance, and none of them really got very close to it. Something that I found, I don't know, absurd, was that in the report, they basically said, okay, so crash test dummies weren't a thing until we started using them in 1950 for different types of tests and simulations. But we were using, at that time, different animals, like monkeys, and shooting them up into the air to see what would happen. So, you know, maybe that's just what it was. I don't know, I just thought that that was a weird thing to add, and that kind of is a theme throughout the report, where they allude to it not being aliens, but then they also rule out a bunch of things like aircrafts or drones or crash test dummies, but also bring up possibilities like live animals being used in simulations. So at points, the report just kind of leaves you with more questions than answers. The accounts of these aliens are also like the reason that we have this specific image of aliens to this day. Like, Take a look at the alien emoji on your phone. He's a little gray guy with big black eyes. These are actually referred to as the Roswell Grays because, yes, there are a lot of different types of aliens. The Roswell Grays are pretty much the OGs, though, and have been described as very American because most of the accounts of sightings of these guys are usually in the United States. But I digress. As I made my way through this seemingly endless amount of information dedicated to this event, Glenn Dennis's account was the only one I came across that really kind of stuck in my mind as something weirdly tangible. He had a lot of video interviews as well as a written interview conducted by Carl Flock in the Roswell Report. There was a whole section dedicated to his accounts of the event and was described as the star witness, claiming that he saw bodies, presumably aliens, being taken to the Army Air Force Hospital on base. Here's the account that's in the Roswell Report about his experience that day. The following is a summary of information provided by W. Glenn Dennis, who claimed he was a 22-year-old mortician at the Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell in July 1947, when he alleged these events occurred. On July 7, 1947, Dennis alleged he received a series of phone calls at the Ballard Funeral Home, where he worked, from the Mortuary Affairs Officer at Roswell Army Airfield. He recalled that the mortuary officer inquired as to the availability of child-sized caskets and procedures for preserving bodies that had been, quote, laying out in the elements. Later that day, he received an emergency ambulance call, The civilian mortuary for which he worked also provided an ambulance service to respond to the site of a minor traffic accident in Roswell. The accident victim was an airman stationed at Roswell AAF, and Dennis transported the airman to the hospital at the base. As Dennis walked into the hospital, he noticed three military box-type ambulances, one or more of which was contained with what appeared to be wreckage. He described the wreckage as being inscribed with odd markings or symbols and bluish-purplish in color. He recalled that some of this wreckage was resting against the inside wall of the rear compartment of the ambulance, and two pieces of it looked kind of like the bottom of a canoe. He described other wreckage on the floor of the ambulance as being all sharp, and he could tell it was like broken glass. 
He also recalled observing military policemen standing at the back of two of these ambulances. When he went inside the hospital, he encountered a military nurse who was assigned there with whom he was previously acquainted. The nurse, who looked upset, was covering her mouth with a cloth and told him that you're going to get in a lot of trouble and that he should just get out of here. Dennis also stated that he encountered a military doctor who was assigned to the hospital, a pediatrician, with whom he was pretty good friends, but did not speak with that man at the time. So the account goes on to state that Dennis was at the hospital, and while there, he said he was quickly ushered out with a large red-headed colonel calling him a son of a bitch and telling him that there was no crash and that he better not go around starting rumors in town. He also said that the next day, when he tried to contact the nurse, he was told she had been transferred from the base that very day. He finally got in contact with her, and when they met up, she appeared disturbed and spoke of doctors doing a preliminary autopsy on three very mangled little black bodies. She said that during the autopsy, the odor from the bodies made her and the doctors in the room feel so ill that they ended up transferring the entire operation to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. After their meeting, he never saw the nurse again. This is just the very beginning of this section, and it continues on for pages and pages, going through each part of the account, attempting to fully debunk each of his statements, often referring to his timeline not making sense, and even dedicating a couple of pages to, quote, saucer swindlers, or the practice of having false UFO stories for financial gain. Even so, I just couldn't get that part about calls from the funeral home out of my head that was just way too weird and specific not to pique someone's interest in this stuff. It wasn't until I read most of the report that I realized that Glenn Dennis is the guy who founded the International UFO Museum and Research Center. Full circle. Okay, fast forward 43 years after the incident originally occurred in 1947, all the way to 1990. Glenn Dennis decides to open the International UFO Museum and Research Center in his hometown of Roswell, New Mexico. This was before the Roswell report was even released, but it makes sense why he opened this place in 1990. It was really the perfect time. Distrust in the government was a theme of this time period as well as the decade before, so the interest in potential government cover-ups about alien life felt like the perfect fit for Americans at the time. The news was filled with interest pieces about UFOs and paranormal activity, so interviews with figures like Bob Lazar, who claimed to have reverse-engineered extraterrestrial technology for the U.S. government, were engraved onto the identity of the 1980s. I mean, this time period gave birth to talk shows that ran purely on shock value, and by this time, a bunch of people owned camcorders, so it really was the perfect storm for peak UFO interest. Don't have any good stories to run at the local TV station? Well, that's fine, because in the mailroom, there's 600 different tapes sent in by viewers of blurry footage of what's probably just a plane flying over their house. Not to mention, this was all happening alongside Star Trek The Next Generation and The X-Files being some of the most popular TV shows of the era. We were in the midst of an outer space mania, and Glenn Dennis and his UFO museum were coming along for the ride.
From all of the reviews I've seen on the internet, people love the museum. Like, all of the best roadside attractions, the International UFO Museum and Research Center features life-size replicas and scenes, most of which are giant gray aliens wearing the silver jumpsuits that all of the accounts gave them, along with mannequins set up in vignettes that display them in scenes of Glenn Dennis's accounts of that day, like an alien laying on a stretcher as a government agent and doctor loom over him. Which makes this place a dream for kitsch enthusiasts. It's not just focused on the Roswell UFO incident, though. It also has exhibits dedicated to other sightings and aliens that have become a part of pop culture. There's information on crop circles, ancient aliens, and Area 51. I think the best and most random part of the museum is that you're allowed to bring dogs. I don't know why, but I like the idea of letting our canine friends learn about the paranormal along with us. As I mentioned before, Roswell has really leaned into the whole alien vibe. Across the street from the museum, there's a UFO-themed restaurant, and all sorts of different extraterrestrial references throughout the town. There's even an annual UFO festival. Making these episodes during quarantine has really racked up a lot of places on my list of locations I'm planning on visiting once I get the vaccine. It's funny to say that because hopefully in like 30 years when I look back on these recordings, that statement will sound so distant and dystopian. I know I say this every time, but if you have any stories, and this time, duh, stories about UFO sightings or trips to Roswell, email me at interstateodyssey at gmail.com. And... If you want to see pictures I talked about in the episode, like the one of Roger Ramey and his secret memo, follow Interstate Odyssey on Instagram. Even though I'm not living my best life in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, hunting aliens, I'm still happy at my apartment, spending my free time watching documentaries about aliens and writing new episodes, so you can all join me on my Interstate Odyssey. Interstate Odyssey